Today we're in Revelation chapter 5, and it's such a beautiful chapter. I have to apologize in advance because I know I won't do it justice. And so I encourage you to read this chapter. Um, when we get into chapter 6, we're going to get into the, you know, the tribulation period. It begins, and all the way through chapter 19, we're going to be talking about judgment. And it's a really tough section of scripture to go through. But, but before we get there, we get to be here in Revelation chapter 5 in which we see some things that are so, um, so awesome, uh, so amazing. I would ask you to continue to pray for the many families that are going through difficulties. Um, uh, some of you may know, but um, I'm not sure. We've been praying for Elsa. That's Pastor Ray's uh, mom. And she went home to be with the Lord uh, this past week. And so, you know, um, I know from what I understand, uh, Ray was actually praying for her to go home, you know, and for a son to do that, um, it just goes to show that, you know, he's putting her before himself, he knows the reality of the resurrection, and, uh, you know, whenever another loved one goes home to be uh, with the Lord in heaven, in all reality, that's a victory, it really is, so this past week, we also did a service for Reuben's mom, uh, Gloria, in glory now, think about that, so, uh, this is what it's all about, but, you know, for us who are left behind, it's difficult. And so if you can continue to pray uh, for them, um, and, you know, I think that as a church, it's it's really cool to see the love and the way that you guys have supported each other. Last week, I mentioned to you one of the brothers that um, was going through, uh, it's just really cool to see what the Lord's done in Carlos's life and how the Lord has brought him out of the, the darkness and, you know, set him free and then... You know, he got a job, and then I was sharing with you guys how um, he, he was supposed to get Sundays off. They were trying to make him work on Sundays. He said, no, I got to be there because I need, you know, this right now. I really need to get rooted and grounded as a Christian. And so he, he was kind of forced to quit his job, um, but the Lord blessed him with another job. Isn't that cool? <laughs> really, really cool, man. And so... God is good, um, he's working, um, but I think all those individual choices that we make day by day uh, are going to make all the difference, and so uh, prayerfully we're seeking him with all our hearts. One of the things that we're going to see in our study today is that in heaven, uh, we're going to worship, we're going to sing. There's a good chance that a lot of you here might be guitar players in heaven, or maybe all of us, everyone, all the 24 elders, they all have a harp, or we're going to see that. And they're all worshiping. And so it's just, it's going to be an overwhelming experience. I mean, just, um, there are no words to articulate the overwhelming experience that we will have in heaven when we are worshiping him in purity, okay? But, but the thing that we have to remember is that worship is much more than a song. It's much more than music. I mean, that's a beautiful part of it. But you guys know this, how huh? Worship is our life. And that's why, you know, we're here, we sing, but when we go out, we live for the Lord every moment, every day. And so I pray that that's part of what we walk away with uh, today. You know, another part I, I want to share with you before we dive in is a Psalm chapter 30 and verse 5, where it says, Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. You know, and, and I think, uh, you know, some of you guys, your life maybe hasn't been all that crazy, 
All of us, uh, we go through different trials and struggles, and only the Lord knows why, um, but I know that it's all filtered through his sovereign grace and love. And for some people, it seems like they weep more, you know, or the nights are longer. I was thinking about that northernmost city in the state of Alaska, the city, uh, I think it's called Barrows, uh, Barrows, uh, and that's one of the northernmost cities in Alaska, and if you were to live there, you would actually be in the darkness in the nighttime for two straight months during the winter. And so for some, it seems like the darkness is longer. It seems like the night is longer. And I don't know um, what you're going through, but it just seems like you're weeping, right? But understand, you guys, one day that the, the night ends and joy comes. And we're going to see that today in Revelation chapter 5. As we go through the study, we're going to see in verses 1 through 4, the scroll. In verses 5 through 7, the slain. And then in verses 8 through 14, the songs. Now, last week in Revelation chapter 4, the emphasis was on the throne of God. As John the Beloved was raptured, he was taken up to heaven, and he was given a a glimpse of the glory of God. Uh, You might remember the throne where God was seated, and you guys might remember if you were here last week, that he was shining like a, like, a, like a diamond, so to speak. It was a sardis stone and then a jasper stone and a rainbow all around him. And then there was that emerald hue to it. And then there were the 24 thrones all around that throne and the 24 elders, the four living creatures, and all that worship. And so, you know, it started there uh, on the throne. And as we get into these days that we're living uh, in, as we get into these days that are leading up to the rapture, And then the craziness that's going to take place, the judgment where every mountain is flattened, every island disappears, the earthquakes, the meteor showers, all the crazy things that begin to happen on planet Earth. I I think what the Lord is saying is that as these things begin to happen, it's important to remember that God's on the throne, even in the midst of all the chaos and craziness that lead up to that period. And as he's on the throne in the midst of all of this, we see in chapter 4 that he is worshipped. But then in chapter 5 we pick it up where we left off from within the throne room and now we hone in on a certain scroll that needs to be unsealed in order for the future to be finalized, in order for, for it to be finished, in order for there to be that judgment and then the you know, millennial kingdom and then the new heaven and the new earth. And, and we long for that because we were made for that. And so we see this is what's necessary. And I'm not sure how you feel about uh, new beginnings on the horizon, but I know that I look forward to that uh, with all my heart, the place where there will be perfect peace, no more sin, suffering, tragedy, turmoil. There will be that beauty, that just majesty, that equality for eternity. It's going to be amazing. We look forward to that day. And so in the midst of all the things that are going on, you know, this is what Revelation was written for. It was written to encourage us as we go through difficulties, that this is the reality of of what's going to happen in the future. And so in verse 1, John says, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, 
Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. We see, first of all, uh, kind of the emphasis is on the scroll. And we see, first of all, what John saw. And there in verse 1, we see that in the right hand of the Father who was seated on the throne, John sees a scroll. He says, written on the inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And so the Greek word is biblion. Uh, It's our version of a book. Back then they didn't have books that were bound. They had scrolls. They would take the papyrus and they would actually glue them together. And then they would roll them up. And if you were to seal it seven times, you know, you could picture the long piece of paper. You roll it up a little bit and then you seal it. You roll it up a little more and then you seal it again with the wax. You roll it up a little again and you seal it with the wax. And so this is a scroll that's written, um, sealed seven times. And uh, John Corson, and we don't know for sure, I was trying to get more information on this, but he said that they actually found in the archaeological findings uh, a a scroll that is written on both sides because uh, some say that typically it's not written on both sides, but he was saying that that was actually a copy of of a deed, a title deed. And I think most theologians that you talk to will actually identify this scroll as the title deed. This is like the paperwork, so to speak, of the ownership of the universe, and in particular, planet Earth. You know, when God made Adam, Adam, in one sense, was the steward. He was the owner in that sense. But when Adam fell, he then lost the title deed of the Earth to the devil. And from that point forth, the devil, the Bible calls him the god of this world, the prince of the power of the air. Um, We see that Adam forfeited that to the devil. But when Jesus died on the cross, he, we're going to see, he, he, he purchased that title deed back. And so right now in heaven, uh, this is a real scene. That we are going to be there. You know, John goes up and he sees the Father with that scroll. Jesus doesn't yet possess this you know, uh, scroll. And, uh, and so the Father is sitting there on the throne with the scroll written on both sides, sealed with seven seals. And we see that this is what we're going to actually be there as well, and we're going to see it. And as we journey through the book of Revelation, we're going to see, especially in chapter, uh, we're going to see in chapter 6, the scroll is unsealed. The first four are the, the horsemen, and then we're going to see other things. All the way through chapter 8, we're going to see the scrolls, the seals, and then we're going to see the trumpets and the bulls as all history unfolds, right? And so here we see John saw the Father with the seven-sealed scroll in his right hand. And then in verse 2, we see that John saw a strong angel, which leads us to not just what John saw, but what John heard. And so let's read again in verse 1. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll, written on the inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And so we're not sure how John knew this was a strong angel. It may have been the angel was buff. That may have been 
how he knew it was a strong angel, right? Or maybe it was just his voice. You know, sometimes you can just tell that guy's a strong guy because his voice is so strong, a loud, booming voice. Um, there are some Bible teachers who believe that this is the angel Gabriel who stands in the presence of God, whose name means strength of God. And so there's a chance that John knew he was strong because he knew it was Gabriel. Uh, we don't know for sure. We can only speculate on that. Uh, but we do know for sure uh, what he heard. And the angel asked with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? You know, and the, again, um, this, it's, we, we know a, a little bit about this as we read the scriptures I do know that um, um, some teachers, when you listen to studies or you're reading books, they'll tell you that in one sense, this is kind of like um, the, the, the ownership of the earth, the, the rule of the planet. You know, and they'll even tell you, you know, well, who is willing to, uh, you know, hold on to this title deed? You know, someone like Alexander the Great or, or Adolf Hitler. I mean, you got these guys that... They want to rule. They want the planet. They want oversight, you know? And, and so there's that question of who is willing. But that's not the question here. It's not who is willing. It's who is worthy. Who is worthy? And that's the question that the angel asks. You know, it's the title deed to the earth. It's the transition of power and ownership. It's the official beginning of the end where Jews and Gentiles will be saved and the world will be judged. You know, not just anyone can unseal the scroll, just as with any transaction of property. It must be someone who's paid the price. It must be someone who's won the war. According to the law of the Lord, the law of God, it had to be a kinsman redeemer. And so the angel asks, who, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? You know, the only one who could judge the world would be the owner. And the only one who could own it would be the one who paid the price. You know, some of us here, we rent a house or we might even lease a car. That's not yours. You can't do to it whatever you want. Only the owner can. And as we come to this place where the world must be judged, where the world must be recreated in, in one sense, we're going to see that, you know, the question is, well, who can... Who can do this? Who's worthy? How can we go forward to the future and finish this whole craziness where you have shows on Netflix that borderline on child pornography? I mean, and that's just the beginning. I can't keep up with all the messages and all the texts and all the news that I get. I just can't keep up with it. All the signs of the, of the decay of the world that we live in. I mean, uh, maybe you heard about these two sheriffs in Compton that were just shot in cold blood. I mean, this is the world that, that we're living in. It is not getting better. It's not. And so, you know, it's like, Lord, let's finish this thing. We were singing it. Lord, come. Come, Lord Jesus. You know, and, and so they're there, and we see what John saw, and we, and we hear what John heard. And then in verse 3, we find what John realized. It says, and no one, no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look at it. I mean, no one 
no one, no one even came close. And we're talking about all the creatures, all the beings in heaven, all the creatures and beings on, on earth, even under the earth. I mean, we're talking about everybody of all time, everywhere in the entire universe, there was no one. You know, it, it, it was, when you look at this, uh, John goes on to weep because it was like the halt of the future. You know, this is what they're looking for, and they can feel it, and they can sense it. You know, it's about to come, the end of evil, the defeat of the devil, no more curse in the universe. It was a paradise now, a place of perfect peace. That's what they wanted to possess, the land of love forever and ever. It's within us. We know it should be there. And we realize, John says, that there was no one that could unseal it. It wouldn't, it couldn't be done. No one in heaven, on earth, under the earth, alive or dead, no one was able to open the scroll or even look at it. And so in verse 4, we see what John did. So I wept much, I convulsed, because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or even to look at it. And you know, guys know, man, in the Greek language, this is not just uh, shedding a few tears. This is the most that you've ever cried in your whole life. This is sobbing with, without any aspect of controlling yourself. It was John weeping and weeping and weeping. It was John feeling something that um, I don't know if you've ever been there. I mean, I don't think we've ever been to that depth of place, but I know that a lot of us have gone through some difficult things. It is just an absolute, absolute, absolute hopelessness. John was allowed to feel that. John was allowed to experience that. You know, he was allowed to feel the sense of absolute hopelessness. The Greek word, it means to mourn and wail. It expresses a strong and unrestrained emotion. You know, you picture someone uncontrollably crying miserably due to the deep and penetrating pain this was the emotional experience of John the Beloved. I mean, I don't know for sure, but I just almost feel, and it's not the same, but I don't know. There is an aspect of connection. It, to me, it, it almost feels like, like, like living in between heaven and hell, and you're trapped. Now, it's not, the, ex the, not the, 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 the darkness of hell. I mean, I can't even begin to imagine the pain and torment. It would be there. But there is that aspect of when you're in hell, there is no hope. No hope forever and ever. You know, in one sense, and I know this is a little, you know, difficult to put ourselves in that place. But remember when Adam fell into sin and he separated himself from God. And uh, after he sinned, you know, God came and God covered them. And God said, one day you're going to be redeemed. But they were in the fallen condition. They were in the separated condition. They were in a place where there would be toil, where there would be sweat, where there would be pain, where there would be spiritual battles with the devil. There would be things that would go on. And if you remember what the Lord did is the Lord went and he sent an angel and he, and he, and he, and he protected them from eating the tree of life lest they stay in that condition forever. Because, you know, that condition, this condition, I mean, we might look at it and we might think, well, it's pretty good because I, you know, whatever, you have fun and you know, life is pretty good. 
And that's because we don't even have a glimpse of what heaven is. It's being trapped. It's like all our life, everything within us wants heaven. And basically what we're seeing right here is John is experiencing like that closed door, that feeling of absolute hopelessness. And so he's weeping. And, and, and before you get to the next spot, I think you have to, uh, to kind of camp out here for a while because otherwise, I don't think you appreciate what comes. You know, we got to see what, what John saw. We got to hear what, God, what John heard. We have to realize what John realized. And then I think we end up doing what John did and that is weeping uncontrollably. But then notice what happens in verse 5. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And so one of the elders, and so remember last week we talked about the elders, the 24, maybe being the 12 representatives of Israel and the 12 representatives of the church. And so one of the elders shares with him something interesting. And I was thinking, who knows, maybe it was Judah himself. But he shares, hey, don't weep. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Those are Old Testament prophecies about the Jewish Messiah. He has prevailed. And it's just so cool when you look at it. He says, hey, check this out. And John heard the greatest words he or we have ever heard. That this lion, that this root of David, this king, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seal. This is the original and ultimate Lion King, in case you guys were ever wondering, you know. You know, when I read this, I, I couldn't help but wonder if this elder is, is, uh, is Judah, because he kind of weaves in a couple of Old Testament prophecies. Uh, first one, out of Genesis chapter 49, uh, verses 8 through 10, I thought it would be cool. Let's turn there to Genesis 49. kind of cool to hear uh, the pages turn so those of you who have bibles it's kind of cool not that i'm against ipads because i do use them but man it's kind of cool to hear that but here in genesis 49 uh, jacob is giving his last words to his sons and he's blessing them and we read in verse 8 and he talks to judah and he says judah you are he whom your brothers shall praise your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies your Father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. And he bows down, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? 
The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. And the Jews clearly understood this as a messianic prophecy of the coming Messiah. And so they knew that he would be ultimately a descendant of Judah. And it's an interesting prophecy describing him as the lion, right? Describing him clearly as a lion. But it's an also an interesting prophecy because it says that, 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 the, that the scepter shall not depart from, from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. Now, in the Jewish mentality, one of the things that's pretty fascinating is for them, the scepter actually was uh, the freedom or the authority they had to impose, believe it or not, the death penalty. You know, they had that authority. They saw that kind of like as the ultimate authority. Uh, if you think about it, it is, you know, to give or to take away life. And so for them, you know, the scepter wouldn't depart until the Messiah came. Really, really fascinating prophecy. And uh, in AD 12, if you were to go back in history, you would find all the Jewish rabbis tearing their clothes, mourning because they thought that God's prophecy had failed because the Roman government stripped the Jews from being able to impose the death penalty. But little did they know in AD 12, right there in the temple in Jerusalem, was the Messiah. And so this prophecy is a really fascinating prophecy. It has to do with the lion of the tribe of Judah. And this word Shiloh, it has to do with, with peace. And he's the one huh, that gives us peace. It speaks of peace. This scepter speaks of rule. The Jews understood this to be a prophecy that was messianic about the coming king. The Messiah would one day come through the lineage of Judah, a descendant of David, to rule and roar and reign over all. Interesting prophecy. The second one we see in the book of Revelation, and we'll go back to Revelation and we'll touch on the root of David, is uh, that this one who had prevailed was not only the lion of the tribe of Judah, but he was, notice again it says in verse uh, uh, 5, of Revelation 5, one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. The Greek word root, it, it refers to a shoot or an offshoot. It can speak of both offspring and ancestry. If we take it at face value, we can see it both ways, that the Messiah is not only the root of David, but in one sense, he's the fruit of David, right? He's the descendant and ancestor. He's the you know, king and creator. He's also the root of David in that he's the maker and the Messiah. He's the king of kings. And it's interesting when you look at the, 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 the uniqueness of Christ, you know, because the, they would always identify him as the son of David. You guys always call me the son of David. That's what Jesus said in Luke 20, 41 through 44. But have you ever really thought about the, what the Bible says? In Luke 20, 41 through 44, he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is the son of David? Now David himself said in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, 
Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David calls him Lord. How is he then his son? And so the Jews knew that he was going to be a descendant of the lineage of David. The Jews knew that he would be through the tribe of Judah. They saw him as the lion described there in Genesis 49. But they never really, a lot of times I think that's our problem. We don't really think things out. He's, he's the root of David. He's not just the, the fruit of David. He's not just the son of David. And, and we see him here identified as that. You know, he is the king. He is the root. He's the creator. And what, you know, John says and what we see here, the angel speaks to us and then John speaks to us is that he has prevailed. All the hopelessness that we feel. You know, I don't know if you guys feel it. You know, I'm not talking about now while you're here and you're thinking there's no heaven. Uh, Just us here sometimes thinking there's no hope. You know, I don't know what your situation is. I don't know who it is maybe that's coming against you. I don't know what lies are being told to you in your mind. I don't know what emptiness you're feeling, what depression you're feeling, what anxiety you're feeling, how the devil's coming against you, and it just... It just deflates us and it defeats us. And, you know, we get down and discouraged when God doesn't want us to, to live like that. The joy of the Lord is your strength. He wants you to have that joy. Well, how can we have that? We feel like John sometimes. We just were weeping. We may not be weeping on the outside because some guys, they don't weep on the outside, but they're weeping on the inside. And, and the answer every single time every single time the answer to whatever takes us down and robs us of our joy every single time is that the lion of the tribe of Judah the root of David has prevailed in this world you will have tribulation Jesus said but be of good cheer I have overcome the world and therefore we read in Romans chapter 8 that in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us now we read this and although there are many prophecies regarding the messiah as the offspring of david the son of david he's also the root of david and so more than likely the elder here is referring to the prophecy in isaiah chapter 11 verse 1 where it says there shall come forth a rod from the stem of jesse and a branch he shall grow out of his roots. But then in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10, And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, who shall stand as a banner to the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. And so he's the stem, he's the root, Isaiah 11, Isaiah 1, uh, 11, 1, 11, 10. 700 years it was written before the birth of Christ. And then later on, Jesus considers this significant. He says in Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. He says, I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. Now, I don't know what that means to you, but if you were a Jew, you knew what the rule of David was to Israel. That was the time of peace. That was the time of victory. 
That was a time of beautiful, right relationship with God. I mean, that, that, that was a picture. It was just a picture of all the kings of Israel. And you look on them all, there was none like David. And what Jesus is doing here is he's identifying you know, and I know we look at the politics of the world and we look at, you know, the things that are going on in the world today and, you know, we do need good and godly leaders and it does make a huge, massive difference. But there's nothing compared to the day when Jesus will rule on earth for a thousand years and then after that's done, the new heaven and the new earth forever and ever and he will rule forever and ever and ever. And that's why it's so important to know these things in the book of Revelation, that it's going to come true. He has prevailed. The Greek word translated prevailed, nikeo, it means to conquer. It means to overcome. It speaks of a victory over the enemy. And so, you know, John goes up and he, you know, he sees this thing and, you know, the, 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 you know, the Lord father God on the throne with the scroll and you know he hears well who's worthy and and you know he experiences the depths of no one's worthy the depth of hopelessness and then he hears you know what the elder says don't we don't we because the lion of the tribe of Judah he has prevailed that root of David has prevailed and, and so, you know, now he's going to look at, well, who, who's this elder talking about? And, and wa- watch what we see next. It says in verse 6, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as though it had been slain having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now, I don't know, you know, I definitely don't know for sure. But what if, what if this is the first time we see You know, I don't know. I know some will say, well, Stephen, he saw the Lord. He was, you know, sitting, you know, standing next to the Father. And so I don't know. We, I don't know. But I just know that there is a, a, a huge possibility that the rapture happens. And, you know, you got these thrones around the throne. And, you know, they're, the whole question, because everything is just getting started, if you think about it. The tribulation period is just getting started. I mean, it just seems like this is the early stages of all this happening. And, you know, the question goes out, well, who is worthy? And no one really has an answer. No one really knows how it all works and what's going on. And then, the, you know, he hears, well, the lion, he's won. The root of David, he's won. And then finally, John looks, and the first thing he sees, you're thinking lion, you're thinking Jesus, because we have our pictures of Jesus. You're thinking whatever, David, I don't know, but the first thing you see, it says that he saw a lamb as though it had been slain. And the Greek word for lamb is like a pet lamb. It's like a little lamb. And he sees this lamb as though it had been slain. There's so much here, like I told you when we started it. I, there's no way I can, 
adequately share this chapter. To me, this is one of the most important chapters in all the Bible. That's why I encourage you to read it and study it, meditate upon it, and worship God as you're doing so. But when you look at this chapter right here, you know, it's amazing to me even how it says, and I looked, and, and in the midst of, of the throne, and in the midst of the elders, you know, and there he is, we're going to see in, in the midst of the, of the churches. I mean, it's like Jesus is everywhere. He's in the midst of us. I mean, it says where two or more are gathered together, Jesus said in Matthew 18, there I am in the midst of you. I mean, this is how involved and ever-present Jesus is. I mean, it's not a, a random that he's in the, in the midst of the throne, in the midst of the elders. You know, when you look at this, we see Jesus described as a lamb. You know, the word lamb is found um, describing Jesus in the book of Revelation, which is, remember, we're like unveiling God. It's the revelation of God. It's the apocalypse. We're going to see now what God is like 27 times in the book of Revelation. Jesus is called the lamb. Remember that story I've told you guys before about the little girl who was doing a, a pretty fancy drawing and she had all these colors and all these lines and, and it was kind of interesting what she was making and so mom comes up to her and says, you know, sweetheart, what are you drawing? And, and she said, I'm drawing a picture of God. And so the mom said, well, no one knows what God looks like. And the little girl says, well, now they will. Remember that story? No one knows what God looks like. Now they will. He's the lamb, the little lamb that was slain. That's the first thing that John saw when he saw Jesus. The word slain, it means to be slaughtered. It's a word used especially of victims of sacrifice. And when there were none, John thought, he, we, we're, we, we thought, we were done. But there arose one and only one, only one, the only one, to take the scroll from the right hand of the Father. You know, he didn't approach that throne as a majestic king or a mighty lion. He came as the lamb, the lamb of God, slain on the cross of Calvary to usher in eternity. Have you guys ever seen that uh, movie, um, Prince of Egypt? Have you guys ever seen that? Man, you guys, you got to check it out. It's a great, great movie. And uh, the thing I, I like about it, I mean, there's so much to it. But, you know, at the end, when it was ultimately won, when the victory was ultimately won, it, it required the blood of the lamb. You guys remember, right? In order to set the people free from the bondage of Egypt. And, you know, it's an interesting story. I like the way that it, you know, it shares. And, you know, one of the, the ladies uh, in the story, uh, she's kind of like talking to Moses. And Moses is kind of sharing with her, like, your people are free. But my people are slaves. My people are in bondage. And this is why God is sending me. Because he wants to set the people free. And, you know, before we were Christians, that's who we were. We were in bondage. We were, in, we were slaves in Egypt. We, we had no hope. You know, when I think about it, I think about being free. I think not only was I 
in, in bondage to sin, but I was, a, a, I was burdened with religion. I, I, and, you know, there was just no hope for me. I was in that place. I could never get out. But what had happened, the Lord gave, you know, Moses the plagues just to kind of make sure that he defeated every single concept of God that the Egyptians or world had to offer. That was, every one of those plagues was God saying, they're not God, I'm God. Every single one of those plagues, right? And so eventually it came down, though, to the victory would be the requirement of a lamb. And the lamb is just amazing when you look about that lamb with no blemish, no broken bones, everything that was required. They would take the blood, they would put it on the lintel and the doorposts of the house. And when the angel of death came down, you guys remember that the angel of death would see the blood. And if the blood was on their house, and the blood would, then the angel of death would pass over. And what ended up happening in Egypt, those places that didn't have the blood, was the death of the firstborn. And everything you see there in the book of Exodus 12 and 13 and 14, and it goes on, is just a perfect, absolute, flawless picture of what Jesus did for us. How he is that, that lamb of God. And so and you go, and there's still a battle, and you go through the book of Exodus, and the enemy comes after them. You know, then the Lord divides the Red Sea, and God, you know, drowns the Egyptian uh, chariots and army there in the, in the sea. And then when they get to the other side, all they want to do is they want to go to the promised land, right? That's what God's called them to. That was a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They all knew that promise. They all knew it was for them, but they weren't there. They weren't experiencing it. But the blood of the Lamb gave them the victory. And then eventually when they went through, it was so cool because um, in the movie, and I don't know if it went like this in real life, but in the movie, you know, one of the gals says, look, Moses, the people are free. And that, to me, it, I always love that part because as a Christian, as a brother, as a pastor, that's what we want for the people. We want you to be free. Free to follow the Lord. Free from the bondage of sin. Free from the burden of religion. Free. Free to obey. Free to love. Free to follow. Free to know that I'm accepted. I mean, it's just a beautiful thing what the blood of the Lamb has done. And you go through it, and it just is overwhelming. It's overwhelming. And you look at all the prophecies and all the typologies of what that lamb did for us on that cross. And if, if that's the first time you see Jesus, you're going to do the same thing he did. Huh? Look what they did. It says in verse 8, Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, they fell down. Now the 24 elders are representative of the church before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us. That's why they have to have the New King James Version. It says the word us. You have redeemed us to God by your blood and of every tribe and tongue and people and nation 
and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. I mean, they knew, and I want to encourage you guys to memorize this now. That way, when you're in heaven, you won't have to look at the overhead projector, okay? We will be singing this song when we see him. You know, you're going to see it over and over again in the book of Revelation. I know a lot of people think that position or posture really doesn't matter. You know, it's just the position of my heart. Yeah, I guess that is more important, but you're going to see it over and over and over again in heaven where they fall down and worship. And that's what we see here. When you look at Jesus, the one with the the seven horns, and of course we know that the horns, they represent uh, power, they represent the kingdom, the the seven eyes, it confirms the fact that he knows everything, he sees everything. The seven spirits refer, refer to the fact that he is the anointed one. You know, when you see Jesus, when they see Jesus, after the scroll and the slain, there are the songs. And when he takes the scroll, and I don't know, I don't know why, and it could probably just me, but can you picture the lamb going up to the father? So the father's sitting on the throne, and he has this scroll. And can you picture the lamb going up and just taking that scroll out? And then once that scroll is taken, you know that now they just push play, they just push forward on on the future and the finish of everything. Imagine just all of a sudden that hopelessness is is just flooded with reality that this is going to happen it's really now happening and and so you know that just like i said like when i worship i praise god for worship and i i love to worship and sing and if you would enter in if you would not allow yourself to be distracted during worship, uh, how many of you can testify to the fact that it is absolutely beautiful and wonderful, right? But can you imagine what it's going to be like there? I mean, this is just a slice, just a sliver of what it's going to, it's just a taste of what we're going to experience. And so now they, they, they fall down, the 24 elders. And it's interesting what we read right here you know, they have these harps, which I don't know if they're guitars or, you know, some people say, well, harps are also pianos. All I know is that there's going to be some music accompanying the voices, right? And they have these golden bowls full of incense, which are representative here, it says, of the, the prayers of the saints. And so every time you say, you know, thy kingdom come, Every time you say, come, Lord Jesus, it's almost like a little drop that goes into that bowl. And one day that bowl will be emptied out and the incense will be will rise before God and that prayer will be answered. Psalm 141 and verse 2, it says, let my prayer be set before you as incense. And so we see that happening right here. You know, Christ is worthy because he was slain. He's the only one who is worthy, he made the way. And so the church, when you look at this, it's interesting. Notice in verse 9 again, you are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals, for you were slain. This is why he was worthy. He's redeemed us to God by his blood. Notice out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, we see the church consists of people 
from all nationalities. Now, there are some who say, well, God shows favorites. He doesn't. He loves every color, every nation, every person, 100% perfect in his love towards everyone. And so some would say, well, well, then why does he favor the Jews? He doesn't favor the Jews. He chose the Jews to reach the world. That's all. It was through the Jews that he gave us the Bible, except for one. And then we see it was through the Jews that the Messiah came. But he had to start with someone. And he loves them and he loves everyone. Now, the Jews have God's perfect protection because they will continue to be assigned to the world. That's why in 1948, they became a nation again. 67, they got Jerusalem. That's why we still see things going on there. So there is that aspect of God using them, and we're going to see them even more in the book of Revelation. But, you know, God loves everyone out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Later on, one of the interesting things about the book of Revelation, it says all the nations bring their glory into it. And so you're like, what do you mean? How can a nation bring their glory into it? And I believe what that's talking about is that even in heaven, there's going to be the cultural national diversity. We're going to have Mexican food. We're going to have Italian food. We're going to have all that different, beautiful creativity of God and his perfection in heaven. And what Jesus has done by his blood, by being slaughtered on the cross, is redeemed us. He brought us back to God. In verse 10, and he made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. You know, when you see that we've been made kings and priests, something we see again later in Revelation chapter 22, verse 5, you know, we're going to rule with him somehow, some way, in a delegated authority forever. And so we read in closing in verse 11, Then I looked and I heard the voices of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory. And blessing. These are the same things they said in chapter 4 towards the Father. It's interesting. And on every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders, notice again, they do this over and over again. They fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. And so this is that scene, you guys. I, I don't know. I mean, to me, it's really, really cool when you get like a group of whatever, 200 people that are just man, praising the Lord. I remember when Harvest Crusades started out, the very first Harvest Crusade, we were there, and I think, you know, there was somewhere around, you know, 7,000 people. I'm not sure on the numbers, but there was just like this aspect of worship, and then it grew, and, you know, next thing you know, you're at Angel Stadium, whatever, 40,000 people that are all worshiping the Lord. Here it says 10,000 times 10,000 times 10,000, because back then 10,000 was the highest number they had, and basically what we're seeing is all the redeemed, all the billions of people. Imagine that. There's not going to be any one of them who are going to be downers, who are not going to be absolutely expressive in their worship. Imagine that experience. Everyone. Imagine that. 
everyone worshiping God the way he should be worshipped. And here we see it's interesting because the worship is primarily directed towards the Lamb. And it's such a beautiful thing that we see. The loud voice directed towards Him. All creatures in heaven and on earth, under the earth, they join in praise forever and ever. Verses 11 through 14, we see here what, what Christ has done. And then in verse 8 through 10, we see what Christ has done for me. He has redeemed us. He has redeemed me. And I pray, you guys, that we would never forget that. Like I said, there's no way that I could adequately adequately share with you the depths and the beauty of this chapter, but I do encourage you to, to take it to heart in the sense that the one who won this victory, you're like, well, how did he prevail? How did he prevail? How did he win? He died. God died. And I know that a lot of us, you know, would not, it doesn't make sense. Well, if he won, that means he killed. That means he crushed, he defeated. No, he prevailed by dying on a cross. And I think that in one sense, if we were to really follow him, that's how we win. By taking up our cross, denying ourselves, and following him. Only one life, soon it will pass. Only what's done for Christ will not. It's not my life. It's not my life. It's his. It's not for me living for my pleasure. It's me wanting to please him. Because when I see, and I don't know if you guys can enter in, but when you enter in, first of all, the, the hopelessness, the place that we were, or that we would have been without Jesus, without Jesus. And then, with Jesus, it brings us to this place of worship. How do I worship? Yeah, singing songs, that's part of it. But it's primarily living life. It really is. And so just know this truth, you guys. Just know this truth and, and let the truth sink in and set you free. That weeping may endure.